You're listening to the midweek edition of the 1208 Podcast. All right, welcome back to another midweek edition. And today is a day that it gets weird. Now, Look, uh, if you've been with us for a while, then you've heard me talk about this before. And I don't just talk about it because I think it's amusing and strange and and weird, though all that that is true. Uh, part of the reason I talk about it is because it affects so much of uh, of the scriptures. And you find this narrative going throughout the Old Testament, and you even find some of the things that are said in the New Testament to only really make sense in light of the story that we're talking about today. And it's a story known as the myth of of fallen angels, okay? It's a story known as as, uh, Enoch's story. So even though I've talked about it a lot, today we're going to talk about it as though you've never heard me say anything about it. I'm going to kind of start fresh and give like a whole kind of understanding of it from top to bottom and go a little deeper than than I usually do. So With all that being said, just prepare yourself. If you haven't heard me talk about the book of Enoch and what is happening in Genesis 6, then it's going to be very startling to you and kind of fresh information. You might stop for a minute and think that I'm crazy, but uh, it's, it's kind of what we find in Genesis 6. So before we get in, we kind of got to set some ground rules here. So follow with me as much as you can. All right. In Genesis 5 and 6, which is what we're going to look at today, we come in contact with a guy named Enoch. So what I'm about to read you is scripture, okay? This is actually in your Bible. Genesis 5 is this long genealogy, and a lot of times when we come across long genealogies in the Bible, we usually just kind of skip past it. We don't really care how long everyone lived, who gave birth to who. We just want to get to to the story, have it continued. But when you stop and you pay attention to the genealogies, you see weird things happen here and there. Okay. So pretty much every paragraph in, in Genesis five ends with, uh, um, a forefather kind of dying. So like Adam has all these kids. And at the end of that, it's like, then Adam died. Seth has all these kids. And then after that, Seth was 912 years and he died. Enosh, not Enoch, Enosh had all these kids, and after 905 years, he died. Kenan had all these kids, and then, uh, you know, it just keeps going on until finally you've got him and his kids passing away. Jared has kids, but Jared's where we're going to pick up because suddenly Enoch shows up, and we don't have the statement that accompanies everybody else. All these other people die, but Enoch has something strange happen. So let's pick up in Genesis 5.18. Again, this is scripture. It says this. When Jared had lived for 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. And then here's where we get into the weird part. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So if we pause in the middle of this genealogy, suddenly the mold of the genealogy is is broken. All of these paragraphs end with people dying, but Enoch's ends differently. This guy walked with God, which is, you know, something special about him that the Bible stopped to take note, and then he was not. So it doesn't even say he died, just suddenly he was not. Why was he not? For God took him. Now, this is one of those passages where we're like, okay, thanks for explaining that one. Uh, what are we supposed to do with that? Well, obviously, people later wondered what you do with that as well, as we'll see 
with the book of Enoch. Now, uh, before we get to the book of Enoch, though, the story goes on. More people continue, but they all die as well until finally we get to the beginning of the story of Noah. So Noah's now born. Noah has kids. And this is where the story of the flood begins. Okay. So now we're in Genesis 6, and here's the strange passage. And if you're paying attention, you're going to have some sensors go off because I remember when, when I, when I, we've all, okay, we've all heard the Noah story a hundred times, the story of the flood. We were literally taught it in preschool and kindergarten and Sunday school. You know, this is one of the famous stories that all the kids know. We've got play, play, my, my kids have toys based on Noah's Ark. So like, we're used to this. Therefore, it's always shocking to us when we stop and pay attention to what the Bible says about the story of Noah's Ark, because it sends off these red flags that we've never heard in church. It's a story we've heard 8 million times, so much so that even when we're reading the story, like we don't pause and take note of what it says because we don't expect anything too weird to be going on that nobody's told us before. But if we stop and pay attention, Genesis 6 explains part of the reason that there is a flood is because something unnatural has happened. All right, so this is where we're going to pick up, Genesis 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. They were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil, only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. All right, so there's your strange passage right there. Now, I remember the first time that I read this with like eyes that actually caught it. Okay, so if you're like me growing up, you're always like, all right, I'm finally going to read this thing called the Bible. And you start in Genesis and you read until you get to kind of like Abraham and Joseph, maybe. And then things kind of the story becomes a little less intense, grabbing your attention. So it's amazing because that meant as a kid, like I read this passage over and over again, because every time that I wanted to read the Bible, I just read the first few chapters of Genesis and, and then I always lost steam. So every time I came back, it's like, I guess I should start at the beginning again. Amazingly, I would miss this every time until I was in college. So in college, I'm sitting in my basement offices for a church that I used to lead worship for when I come across this passage saying to me straight up, the sons of God came and had sex with the daughters of men and created an off-breed kind of mix known as the Nephilim, which were the mighty men of old, the men of renown, or even another way to interpret that word Nephilim is giants. And at the time I was reading the message version and the message, if I remember right, just straight up said like the sons of God had sex with the daughters of men and created giants. So when I'm reading the message version and, and seeing it straight as it is, I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you talking about? This, 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 is, this didn't happen. This isn't in the Bible. So I have all this confusion, right? Because I've never heard this in church before. I'm just thinking, uh, something's got to be askew here. Somebody would have mentioned this. And so I start to pull out my Bible software and do some research and uh, I'm already very supernaturally minded at the time. I'm learning a lot about the Holy Spirit and how he works. So as uh, my personality, I, I'm prone to be like, this seems very supernatural. Like it seems weird to water this into anything else. 
but I'm going to play it safe and read what some commentaries have to say. So I start doing a little bit of investigation, and sure enough, the commentaries I look at are saying exactly what I thought they would say, is that the sons of God are really just men, because God, you know, made men, and therefore men are are his sons to some extent. And I'm reading that, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I want to try to be conservative in my views here, but that that interpretation goes completely against what it says. I mean, think about it, right? Just use some logic there. Sons of God, if we were to say that that, that is men, then why is it like men had daughters with the, sorry, men had relations, had sex, came into the daughters of men and bore giants, the mighty men of renown. Like, sure, you could run with that in some weird ways, but it just doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't line up. Like, clearly, the giants are a product of something strange happening. Like, it's expected that something is off, that that this isn't just normal men and women having babies. Something is very confused right here. So for me, I I didn't want to like just run off the bandwagon and be like, the sons of God had sex with, with the daughters of men. But I also didn't see like uh, a whole lot of scholars out there trying to give any credit to this. So I was like, all right, I guess I just gotta, I gotta trust. So what I ended up doing was this. I came to like a a scientific, I know this sounds weird, maybe even stranger than where we're going to go. I don't know. You, you can decide. I came to a midpoint where I was like, okay, I'm going to try to be rational from what I understand from like a scientific worldview, maybe. And then I'm going to mix that in with the possibility that this passage is strange. So what I ended up settling on, <laughs> and I know this sounds crazy, is I was like, look, I'm not saying there's aliens, but... If I was an ancient race and suddenly some beings came out of the sky and took women in and did projects on them or something and then created giants, some kind of like half-breed thing, like that's the only logic I can make here because, uh, because you know, later in the Bible, Jesus says that the angels uh, one day will be like the angels and we won't have sex anymore. So it's like, okay, so the angels don't have sex. So uh, I don't know what the sons of God are, but if an ancient race saw people come out of the sky, saw some kind of race or beings coming out of the sky and UFOs, maybe that. So what I ended up coming to was like, uh, look, there is no proof that there is any such thing as aliens. But if down the road we were ever to see the case, we could always say Genesis 6 is in our Bible and maybe, maybe they've been here before or something. So like, <laughs> please understand, I know I sound insane. I, I, I know you see the meme of Jamin looking like that aliens guy, that, that meme with the guy with the hair. You know what I'm talking about, History Channel. Um, or maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. You can just go Google it, you'll see. Aliens. Anyways, that that was what I did with it because nobody else told me any other way that I could take that. And I just wasn't, I wasn't sold enough to say that this passage is just about men and women having sex. Clearly, logically, there's something else going on here because the product of them having sex is giants, is strange, it's off. So with that being said... Um, that was my first introduction to this passage. I didn't really preach it or talk about it or anything. I just knew like that's strange. But then a few years back, I finally came across a scholar and I've talked about this book plenty of times before, Michael Heiser, The Unseen Realm. And lo and behold, based on Genesis 6, there is a long-held mythology on this entire premise that the sons of God had sex with the daughters of men and created giants. It's existed as a mythology for a long time. It was something that the people of Jesus's time knew quite well to the point that you can actually see it play out in some New Testament passages as a legitimate concern and fear. And we'll get to that. Uh, but for right now, just understand like this, this was a a conversation that uh, ancient people knew well, 
based on this Genesis 6 passage. And where we find it especially elaborated on is not in your Bible. What I just read to you in Genesis 6 is really like the most that it gets into the details. But there's another book called the Book of Enoch. So here's what you need to know about the Book of Enoch. The Book of Enoch is not scripture, okay? So we cannot look at it as inspired, at least to the same extent that the Bible's inspired. It's not God's holy word. However, here's what Enoch is. It is a book that your Bible references. So if you were to go into Peter, you're going to find Peter reference Enoch. You're actually going to find the New Testament write uh, a mention about the prophet Enoch. We can cite it in 2 Peter. He gets into some stuff about Enoch. If you knew the book of Enoch, you'd be like, oh, I know what he's talking about. Just so the people at, at the time when uh, Peter wrote his letter, 2 Peter, people would have heard what he was saying. You'd be like, oh, you're referencing the book of, of Enoch. Uh, but even more explicitly, if you were to go to Jude verse 14, here's what Jude says in his book in the New Testament. He says, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Right there, that's, that's a reference to the book of Enoch. So here's, here's kind of the strange predicament that we're left in that we need to understand. Enoch is not scripture, okay? It's not the Bible. It's not a part of the canon of the Bible. But the people who wrote the Bible did think it was an important book. It did illuminate the way that they thought, so much so that what is canon in your Bible, what is actually Scripture, quotes this book. Now, that's always confusing territory, right? Like, if you were to go throughout the Old Testament, you're actually going to find your Old Testament quote other books. Uh, they're going to say, look, if you want to learn more about this topic that we just hit on in, in this passage of the Bible, then, of course, go and read this book over here. Go and read that book over there. And it has all the records. We don't have those books. They're long gone at this point. But we're left with this question, like, if we found them, would they be scripture? <laughs> because the Bible references them. So God's inspired word saw some other books as important. That's just kind of the predicament we're left with with Enoch. So no, Enoch is not scripture. We've known about it forever and we don't hold it up to uh, the level of scripture. But it's that doesn't mean it's not important. If you want to get inside the head of the people who wrote the Bible, then guess what? You need to read what they read. That way you know when they make references like Jude does and what Peter does, suddenly you have some context. And I think you can see how important that is because almost everyone has not read the book of Enoch. So when you come across these passages <laughs> that reference Enoch, you're like, I have no idea what that means. And you can't. You can't know what that means because you don't know what the book says, right? All that being said... <clears throat> We're going to look at it a little bit today. So um, here's what you also need to know about Enoch. The book of Enoch, this guy who walked with God in Genesis 5 and then was no more. He seemed to not die, but was taken up to heaven with God, uh, just like happened to Elijah. Uh, that's the best that seems we can make sense of the passage that God took him. Um you need to know that that guy did not write the book of Enoch, okay? So the book of Enoch is found in what we call the pseudepigrapha. And uh, if you hear that first word there, pseudo, um, you might be thinking of other words that use that root word like pseudonym, right? So if I write a book with a pseudonym, I'm writing it under a name that is not my own. Uh, and that is uh, what the book of Enoch is. So it's written much closer to Jesus's time, way after Enoch has already died. And therefore, it's not written by Enoch. Nor is it like, since Enoch didn't die, he's up in heaven writing a book and sent it to us. It's not like that. It's nothing weird like that. The Jews, however, were okay with occasionally rewriting books um, or, or writing books pretending that they were someone else from the biblical narrative. So you actually do find some books 
um, that go all the way back into like Genesis, where the Jews were retelling these stories, writing their own version of it by kind of submerging themselves in the story. Therefore, you need to know, like, the Book of Enoch is not necessarily historical, but it is based around the Jewish thinking of what happened in Genesis, okay? So, uh, the Book of Enoch is based around this short story that we have in our Bible about a flood coming after uh, the Nephilim have been created by the sons of God and by humans, and since you probably haven't read it, and you probably hadn't planned on reading it because it just sounds so weird, I'm going to read some of it to you right now so that you have an idea as to what uh, the book of Enoch is saying. So I'm going to start in Enoch, First uh, Enoch 6, and I'm actually going to read a few chapters because I want you to submerge your mind in what New Testament writers were thinking was uh, a fairly accurate way to think of history, or at least like a, uh, an important way of thinking of the time. Okay. So first Enoch six, I'm going to start there and read for a bit. And it happened that when the sons of men multiplied in those days, they begat good and beautiful daughters and the angels, the sons of heaven saw them and longed for them and said to one another, come, let us choose for ourselves women from among the people and bring forth ourselves children. All right, pause right there really quick. This is important for us to recognize. Uh, the, the people around Jesus' time considered the sons of God of Genesis 6 to be angels, okay? So if we were to just look at the context of the sons of God in the Old Testament, we would rank them as like high authority uh, supernatural beings, um, to some extent, they might even be like the little G gods of the Old Testament um, who are not God, nothing like God. There is only one God, but he has made other spiritual beings called sons of God. Uh, and he's granted them authority because they're kind of higher ranking supernatural beings in, uh, uh, that he has made. Okay, so that's what we would take away if we just took the Old Testament. But uh, the book of Enoch and the people of Jesus' time were thinking that these sons of God, we could classify them uh, furthermore as, as angels. Watcher angels, to be specific, which is another story. Watcher angels you start to find in Daniel. So while, uh, uh, while Israel is in exile, they kind of seem to expand upon their understanding of the supernatural world. And now you don't just have angels, but you have watchers, watcher angels. And that's what uh, the angels, the sons of God of Enoch are. They're watcher angels. So let's continue. They've just decided that they're going to take human wives. And now I've got to read a bunch of crazy names as we move throughout. So it might get a little weird. And Simeaza, who was their ruler, said to them, so this is an angel, I fear you may not wish to do this deed and I alone will be responsible for a great failure. Therefore, they all answered him, Let us all swear by an oath and devote one another to mutual destruction, not to turn back from this decision until we complete it and do this deed. Then they all made a vow together and put each other under a curse in regard to this. These are the names of their rulers. Simeaza, this was their ruler of all the angels. Arathak, Kimbra, Semaine, Daniel, Ereros, Simiel, Iomiel, Chukcheriel, Ezekiel, Batriel, Sethiel, Atriel, Tamiel, Barakiel, Ananatha, Thoniel, Ramiel, Aziel, Rakiel, Toriel. Now, uh, I do just want to point this out. One of those last names, Aziel, right there. We recently did a message about Azazel from the Old Testament. That angel right there, if you remember that message or you go back and listen to it on the podcast, that's supposed to be the Azazel that uh, I was talking about in uh, New Testament thinking. Okay. These are the chiefs of tens among them. All right, chapter 7. Then they took for themselves women each of them choosing a woman for themselves. They began to go to them and defile them. And they taught them sorcery and enchantments 
and cutting of roots and explained herbs to them. But those who became pregnant brought forth great giants from 3,000 cubits. All right, now let's pause right there for a second, because if I'm doing my math right, I think that's 4,500 feet. So (laughs) that sounds a little ridiculous and makes everything sound even crazier, right? I mean, women giving birth to basically Jack and the Beanstalk-sized giants just sounds a little crazy. Um, here's what I, I do want to do though. Uh, now I'm getting a little ahead of ourselves, but the Nephilim are still around after the flood. Okay. They show up in numbers and then we see Goliath. If you ever wondered like, why is there suddenly this giant named Goliath that David fights? Well, everyone knew what the giants were from in the Bible. The giants were the off breed of, of, uh, the sons of God having sex with the daughters of men. And they still existed in numbers and, Apparently, Goliath was one of them. So I want to talk about Goliath because he is the only giant in the Bible where we are told a giant's height. So if you want to scripturally know how big a giant was and not just like, you know, Enoch, this book, know how big a giant was. If you want to scripturally know how big a giant was, then you look at the height that the Bible tells us Goliath was. So I'm going to quote from Michael Heiser's Unseen Realm, where he says this, How tall were the biblical giants? The only measurement for a giant that exists in the biblical text is that of Goliath. The traditional Masoretic Hebrew text, that is what you have in your Bibles, has him at six cubits in a span. That's 1 Samuel 17.4, which is roughly nine feet, nine inches. The Dead Sea Scroll reading of 1 Samuel 17.4 disagrees and has Goliath at four cubits in a span, or six feet, six inches. Virtually all scholars consider the Dead Sea Scrolls reading superior and authentic. Now, Heiser does go on to say that there's no evidence external to the Bible for unusually tall people in Canaan during the biblical period. So we don't have anything like ridiculous, like 4,500 feet tall, like Enoch's explaining. Uh, But uh, when we look at Goliath, we would be expecting kind of like a taller person. Now, I would go beyond that and say like a giant probably had some other distinguishing features as well, because, you know, we see six feet people today. And I, I've heard people who are like, oh, they, they must be Nephilim. No, we have no reason to go there. You know, we, we have genetics. Our genetics can make us tall. Um, I would suggest that there's probably some other features where, like, you saw Goliath and you just knew, like, this guy was someone to, someone to fear or, or someone to compete with, right? Uh, the Nephilim were called the mighty men of renown. So probably even from like a muscular standpoint, you're not just talking about like a tall, lanky guy, but someone that that you would fear. So anyways, uh, all that to say, just um, a little note on height right there. So let's go ahead, jump back into Enoch. But those who became pregnant brought forth great giants from 3,000 cubits. These giants ate up the produce of the men. When the men were not able to provide for them, the giants had courage against them and ate up the men. And they began to sin against birds and wild animals and reptiles and fish, and each one of them ate up the flesh and drank the blood. Then the earth brought up charges against the lawless ones. Aziel taught the humans to make swords and weapons, shields and breastplates, the lessons of the angels. And they showed to them their mining and craftsmanship, anklets and adornment, powders and painted eyes, and all kinds of chosen stones and dyeing. Much ungodliness and prostitution happened, and they were led astray and ruined in all their ways. Simiaza taught enchantments and cutting of roots, armoros, spells of healing, rakil, astrology, chochiil, the science of symptoms, sathiel, watching the stars, Siriel, the course of the moon. Therefore, the cry of the utterly destroyed people went up unto heaven. Now, I want to pause right there again and talk a little bit about these things that they taught. I'm actually going to quote myself this time. It'll just be easier than me explaining it. Uh, So this is in my book, The Rush and the Rest, a section about the world um, at the time based on Enoch towards the end of my section on spiritual warfare. So here's what it says. 
And so we find that the Jews believed that effective war techniques and technologies came from the angels. Likewise, things of relation to beauty like jewelry and makeup were passed on by the angels, which may not seem so bad until we notice that these beautifying techniques were mentioned right alongside prostitution, leading us to believe that it was for all seduction's sake. But there's still more going on here than meets the eye. As Ida Froelich points out, metallurgy and smithing are very closely related to the notion of magic. Ironsmiths are considered sorcerers in the belief system of the ancient and modern Near East. Weapons made by forgers were attributed to magical power. Jewels served originally as amulets with apotropaic function. The ancient magical origin of makeup, especially the painting of eyes and lips, is well known, and similarly the magic of jewels. In Enuma Elish, the Mesopotamian creation myth, all the gods at war wear amulets, using their magic power against their enemies. According to the myth of Inanna's Istar's descent into the netherworld, the fertility goddess going to the netherworld must part with one of her seven magical powers, represented by an item of her garments and jewels, at each gate of the netherworld. At the end of her journey, she arrives naked and powerless before Eskrigal, the lady of the netherworld. In the Sumerian variant of the myth, two pieces of Ishtar's cosmetics and jewels are specified as having the power of sexual attraction. And so, with weapons and makeup comes violence, magic, and sex. Sex then becomes prostitution, and prostitution becomes what it always is, enslavement. We also see enslavement happening in the world before the flood in other ways. For example, it seems that the giants expected humans to feed them. If a man was unable to bring food to a giant, the cost might be their life in a very disturbing way. As we saw in 1 Enoch 7, 3-4, these giants ate up the produce of the men. When the men were not able to provide for them, the giants had courage against them and ate up the men. Now, uh, just to point out, that also could be metaphorical, like they just ate up everything that the men had for themselves. So, you know, you could take it cannibalism or it could kind of just be like a way of saying like they took everybody else's stuff too. As you can see, First Enoch believed that the world had become a dark place after angels intermingled with humans. Not only did they give birth to sinful creatures, but they taught humanity all kinds of secret and forbidden wisdoms. All right, let's turn back to the book of Enoch now. I am now in chapter 9. Then Michael, Uriel, Raphael, and Gabriel, looking on from heaven, saw much blood poured out upon the earth. Uh, just to note, like, uh, some of these angels you actually see in your Bible. Uh, you know, Daniel talks about Michael and and uh, suddenly you've got these angels, uh, these archangels, these good guys who are not fallen like uh, the rest of these angels who have committed this sin. So these are the good guys, and they're very powerful angels because they're archangels. That puts them towards the top of like authority and stuff like that. And they said to one another, See, a voice crying aloud upon the earth unto the gates of heaven. The souls of the people made an appeal, saying, Lead us to the highest for our judgment. And they said to the Lord, You are Lord of lords, and the God of gods, and King of the ages. The throne of your glory lasts unto all the generation of the ages, and your name is holy and great and blessed unto all the ages. For you made all things, and having all power and all things before you uncovered and opened to sight. And you see all things that Azal made, who taught all the wrongdoing upon the earth, and made visible the mysteries of the ages that are in the heaven, and which men pursue and know. And Simeaza, to whom you have given power to rule those who are together with him. And they went to the daughters of the people of the earth and slept with them. So they themselves were defiled, and they revealed to them all sins. And the women begat giants under whom the whole earth was filled with blood and wrongdoing. And now behold, the souls of the dead shall cry aloud and make an appeal unto the gates of heaven. And their groaning went up, and it was not able to go from the face of the transgression happening upon the earth. And you know everything before it came to be, and you see these things, and you allow them. You do not say to us what must be done for them about this. Then the Most High, the Great Holy One, spoke about these things, 
And he sent Israel to the son of Lamech and said, Say to him on behalf of my name, Hide yourself, and reveal to him the end that is coming, and the whole earth is destroyed. And a flood is about to happen among all the earth and utterly destroy everything that is in it. And teach him that he should flee, and his seed will remain in all the generation of the ages. And he said to Raphael, Bind Azale hand and foot, and throw him into the darkness. Open the desert that is in Dadul, and throw him there. And the place under him, the rugged and sharp stones, and let darkness cover him. Let him live there forever. Cover up his appearance, and let no light be seen. For in the day of great judgment he will be led away into the burning. The earth that the angels removed was healed, but reveal the healing of the earth so that they may heal the blow, so that all children of the people may not be destroyed with the whole mystery that the watchman ordered and showed to their children. And the whole earth was destroyed and laid waste by the works of Azazel's teaching. Sorry, Azazel's teaching, who is seen as Azazel in, uh, in uh, other areas. Ascribe to him all sins. Now, uh, you could learn more about that. Just go back on our podcast and listen to the episode about Azazel. But um, I am going to jump into that really quick because I want to show you again how Enoch gets mixed up into the New Testament. Okay, so in 2 Peter 3, uh, we have uh, uh, Peter straight up reference what you just heard. So uh, Azazel or Azazel has been thrown into this pit. He's been bound there. Uh, the flood is coming, and uh, he is now under judgment. Now, when people hear this verse out of Second Peter, if you've been taught the way I was taught, and I just talked with someone this weekend who was taught the same thing, we've all kind of heard that like Jesus, when he died, went to hell and uh, went to the underworld, and apparently proclaimed to spirits in prison there as though like he went and offered them salvation now that he had come, so that he could save people out of out of hell or something like that. See, the reason we come up with that teaching is, again, because we don't know the book of Enoch, and Peter did. Based on everything you just heard, you're going to hear this passage in 2 Peter completely different. So let me read it to you. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they did not formally obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So right here you have Peter talking about the flood and talking about spirits in prison. Those spirits in prison it's, a, it's referencing Enoch. You've got these angels in prison. Spirits is another way to refer to angels, and I think you even see Revelation do that, and you see other Jewish literature do that as well. So since angels are not, you know, humans, spirit is a word that sometimes gets attributed to them. So in the days of Noah, spirits in prison, Peter's talking about Jesus going to, uh, um, going to these angels and proclaiming to them, uh, that he's one, and that judgment is still on them. How do we see that? Well, Heiser actually says this one really well. In the same way, uh, and I'm just paraphrasing here, in the same way, you know how how Paul sees uh, Jesus as like a second Adam? So we had the first Adam, but now Jesus is the second Adam, the better Adam, the superior Adam. In the same way, Peter saw Jesus as like a second Enoch. It's a typology. He's a type of Enoch. So Enoch, uh, we haven't even met him in the book of Enoch yet, <laughs> but Enoch is going to be given a message to go to the angels and tell them that judgment is on him. We're about to get there. What happens when Jesus goes into the grave? He goes and proclaims to spirits in prison. He's telling them judgment's still on them. He's reiterating what Enoch did before. All right, let's pick up. Uh, oh, what I just read was 2 Peter 18 through 20. So you can go check that for yourself later. All right, let's return to the book of Enoch, chapter 10, verse 9. And they said that to Gabriel, go against the bastards, against the base ones, and the children of fornication, and destroy the children of the watchmen among the people. Send them to the battle of destruction, for they will not have a long life. 
There will not be any questioning to their fathers, even concerning themselves, for they hope to live an eternal life, and each of them will live 500 years. So all that right there is, we're not, that right there is not judgment on the angels. That's judgment on the angels' children, which is the Nephilim, the giants. Uh, Picking up verse 11. Then Michael said, Go and make known to Simeaza and those remaining with him, those women with whom they mixed, being defiled by them in their uncleanness. Should their sons ever be slaughtered and see the destruction of their beloved ones, bind them for seventy generations in the wooded vales of the earth, until the days of judgment and consummation, until the judgment of the ages of ages is completed." Then they will be led away into the gaping abyss of fire and into the torture and into the jail being shut up forever. And whoever is burned up and destroyed from that time, they will be bound up together with them until the completion of the generation. Destroy all the spirits of the false ones and the sons of watchmen because of their wrongdoings to humans. Uh, I just want to pause for a second. Does this sound like revelation? (laughs) It should. Uh, because Enoch is an apocalypse. Apocalypse is a genre of writing that we don't have anymore. When we think uh, apocalypse, we think like desert wasteland, people are ugly and beat up, and meteors have hit the earth, or cosmic warfare, or uh, missiles have just taken everything out. Look, apocalypse in ancient times was a specific kind of genre. Revelation is written in this genre. Enoch is written in this genre. So, if you've only ever read Revelation as the only apocalypse you've ever read, you're probably like, man, there is just nothing like this book. Based on what I'm reading right now, you may start to feel like, wow, there's another book out there like Revelation? Yes, and what's interesting is it's hitting on the same themes. So, the lake of fire that's going to get rid of Satan and his minions and all those who follow Satan and his minions, like, that's their judgment— You just found it right here in Enoch. They had the same thing in mind, that one day, not just uh, um, earthly um, sinners who refuse to accept God will find themselves in this lake of fire, but spiritual beings who oppose God and are fallen will find themselves in this lake of fire. Uh, Enoch believed that, and you see that reiterated um, in Revelation 2. Uh, in this case, it was a judgment that would come upon uh, the watchers and these angels who slept with women and uh, their children. All right, verse 16. Destroy all wrongdoing from the earth, and every work of wickedness will be forsaken. Let the plant of righteousness and truth be revealed forever. It will be planted with joy. And now all the righteous ones will flee, and they will be living ones until they beget thousands, and all the days of their youth and their Sabbath rest will fill with peace. Then the whole earth will work in righteousness, and the tree will work, and the tree will be planted in it and be filled with blessing. And all the trees of the earth will rejoice exceedingly. It will be planted, and they will be planting vines. The vine that they will plant, they will make pitchers of wine according to each of the sown seeds and make measures of olives. It will make up to ten jugs. And you make the earth clean from all uncleanness and from all wrongdoing and from all sins, ungodliness and uncleanness that is upon the earth. Wipe it away. And all the people will be serving and blessing and worshiping me. And the whole earth will be made clean from all stain and from all uncleanness, wrath and suffering. I will never send it upon them again unto all the generations of the ages. So again, uh, this book is doing what it can to tell its own narrative within the flood story, but also um, say it in its own way. Uh, So the final thing we're just going to look at here, I just want you to catch a glimpse of Enoch. Uh, We don't have to go much deeper with him. Um, All we know, again, from our actual scriptures is Enoch was no more. He went to be with God, Um, but Enoch in the book of Enoch is a prophet who kind of has a similar situation to what happens to to, uh, John in the book of Revelation. John enters this trance, you know, he suddenly is led around by angels to see all these signs and visions. Enoch is the same thing because, again, that's part of what makes an apocalyptic book apocalyptic. So I'm going to just jump into chapter 12. Uh, So I'm just skipping a few verses here. 
Before these words were spoken, Enoch was taken, and nobody knew where he was taken, where he is now, and what happened to him. (laughs) His works were with the watchmen, and his days were with the holy ones. And standing there, I, Enoch, was blessing the Lord of greatness, the King of the ages, and behold, the watchman of the Holy Great One called me, Enoch, scribe of righteousness. Go and speak to the watchman of heaven, any who left behind the high heaven and a holy eternal place, who were defiled with the women, and just as the sons of the earth did, they did the same also, and took for themselves women. You have brought great destruction on the earth." And there will be no peace for you, nor remission of sins. And though they rejoice in their children, they will see the murder of their beloved ones, and they will groan over the destruction of their children, that is, the Nephilim. They will be bound forever, and there will be for them no mercy and peace. Enoch said to Azel, Go, there will be no peace for you. Great judgment has come out against you to bind you. There will be neither pause nor questioning for you about which wrongs you brought to light and about all the works of ungodliness, wrongdoing, and failure, all that you declared to the people. Then I went and spoke to all of them. They all were terrified, trembling, and fear gripped them. So right there, that's, that's where Enoch proclaims to them, if you will just as we see Jesus go to these spirits in prison and proclaim to them later in Second Peter. They request that I should write to them records of questioning so that there might be a remission of sins for them, and that I might read to them the record of questioning before the Lord of heaven. For they are not yet able to speak nor lift their eyes to heaven from the shame of their sin. So they were condemned. So now Enoch, has, you know, these fallen angels are like, we're sorry, tell God we're sorry. And he takes a record of them. Here's what he says. Then I wrote the record of their questioning and the prayer concerning their spirits and what they are asking, how there should be for them a remission of sins and length of days. Then I went and sat upon the waters of Dan and the land of Dan, which is far from the right side of Hermon towards the west. I read the record of their prayer. As I was put to sleep, suddenly dreams came upon me and visions fell upon me, and I saw visions of wrath. Then a voice came, saying, Speak to the sons of heaven to reprove them. And being awakened, I came to them and gathered together, were sitting mourning in Elbasada, which is between Lebanon and Senseel, which covering their faces, while covering their faces. Before them I also reported to them all the visions that I saw in my sleep, and I was beginning to speak words of righteousness, reproving the watchmen of heaven." And then, you know, it it goes on from there. Uh, (laughs) Okay. So, we just spent a lot of time in this podcast reading the book of Enoch, which you could do for yourself, but the reason I did it is because a lot of you probably aren't going to. And if I don't do it, you may never hear it, and therefore you'll kind of misunderstand a few passages in the New Testament that where the writers of your New Testament read this book and kind of referenced it. So I, I already showed you two different spots in Second Peter and Jude. I want to give you one more example of just how everyone was thinking this way um, around this time. This is a very simple uh, demonstration right here, um, but a lot of people don't pay attention to it, mostly because we consider this passage to be cultural, so we don't pay attention to it in the first place. In 1 Corinthians uh, 11, you have Paul telling women that they need to wear hair coverings. Now, I've talked about this before, uh, and I'm actually borrowing it from Michael Heiser again in his book, Reversing Herman, where he borrows from two different uh, scholars who have a lot to say. I would love to dive deeper into it. I'm just not going to do that right now because we already have said a lot. But I at least want to show you um, why do women have to wear head coverings, according to Paul. He says this in 1110, 1 Corinthians 1110. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. So why is a woman supposed to wear uh, wear a head covering? Because of the angels. Uh, in doing this, apparently it was a way to like say like, "Hey, I'm I'm taken, angels. You you can't have me." Uh, why would Paul expect that? Well, he's talking about when they come together. And at least when we look at some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were left uh, behind long ago that we we found some time back, and they just have all these writings of how, uh, you know, religious uh, followers of God thought back then. 
we start to see that they thought that angels were present when you worshipped. So, like, churches might get together and you might expect uh, angels to to be present. To some extent, you kind of see that in Revelation, right? I mean, you got uh, um, John is supposed to write letters to the angels of churches, as though, like, every church has its angel. I don't know how that works out, if that's metaphor or just a way of being apocalyptic. But either way, you come across that story um, in Revelation. So in the same way, Paul seems to be thinking, look, women, in the past, angels have been seduced by your good looks. So if uh, you're going to go to church, wear a head covering, you know, uh, protect protect yourself. The head covering shows like that there's a symbol of authority above you. You know, the way that he's referencing is like, you're already taken, you're already married, uh, and they can't uh, break the cosmos again. They can't break cosmological order. Angels are not supposed to have sex with human beings, so you need to keep them at bay. Uh, so, you know, Paul just makes that simple statement. Uh, you, why should you wear hair coverings? It's because of the angels. Don't, don't seduce them. Uh, so the only real rational reason that I can see that Paul would even say this is because of the logic of of Genesis 6. Or if you wanted to elaborate more, you could get into First Enoch, which Paul, I'm sure, had read himself. Uh, on that note, this reminds me of something else I probably should have said forever ago. I mentioned a long time ago that, like, Jesus says when we have resurrected bodies and we come into the new uh, creation, uh, we'll be like the angels and we won't have sex anymore. Uh, a lot of people are like, well, see, Jamin, this is why this whole thing's just flawed in the first place. Enoch is about angels having sex and they don't do that. And uh, as Heiser points out, uh, the idea behind what Jesus says is that angels uh, aren't supposed to have sex, not that they can't have sex. So it seems in some way they have the ability to materialize, just as you see throughout uh, the Old Testament when they appear. And uh, apparently they have the ability, if they wanted to sin, to um, go further than that and take it to, to a sexual level. So uh, has that ever happened again since Genesis 6? We don't know, right? I mean... The, the reason some might say it could happen again, or maybe even the reason why Paul is thinking it could happen again, is because uh, in the Old Testament, these giants show up again. They're, uh, uh, again, in numbers, you've got Goliath later, uh, you've got uh, the conquest, and during the conquest, you see um, giants who seem to be among, like, I think it's the Anakim, um, where some Israelites go to spy out the land and they come back and they're like, man, we are grasshoppers compared to these people. In other words, he's saying like, they're huge, they're giants, right? So uh, you see the giants show up after the flood. And so perhaps Paul's thinking like, why do we really have to protect ourselves? Well, the flood didn't get rid of them. They, they came back. Um, I think another way that you could see it is that maybe the flood wasn't worldwide, like a lot of people uh, think that it is. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's uh, that's going to be a podcast in the upcoming weeks. So, uh, <laughs> all of this being said, does this have anything that matters to our own life? Right, the Book of Enoch. This ideology here does it have anything to do with anything that that we think of today? Like, okay, Jamin, you gave us some passages where if we understand the Book of Enoch, we could then understand. Uh, some passages a little clearer, but does it really have any bearing on how I live my everyday life and whatnot? It, that right there is an interesting question. And I would say yes. Here's, here's the difficulty. Again, Enoch's not scripture. So we can't say that this is completely has to be the way that uh, things work out. But it seems to be an understanding that I think uh, the Jews of Jesus's time had about demons. Here's what we see. Um, when the Nephilim die, if we were to go into um, the first Enoch 15.8, here's what it says. And now the giants who are born from the spirits, even the strong spirits of flesh upon the earth, their dwelling will be on the earth evil spirits went out from their body. 
For they came from the higher places, and the beginning of their creation and foundation is with the watchful holy ones. They will be called evil spirits. So, just to reiterate that, the book of Enoch believed, and therefore the Jews who read it and seemed to share this ideology. The demons of the New Testament, the evil spirits of the New Testament, were thought to be the spirits of the giants. So when the giants died, I think the way to think about it, the way that Enoch's saying it, is essentially like, you know, they don't belong to heaven, they don't belong on earth, because, but at the same time, they're spirits made of... <laughs> people from of angels from heaven and people from earth. So it's almost as though like their spirit is just destined to kind of dwell on the earth. And now that's where they belong. So suddenly you have uh, finally some, someone from ancient times coming to a conclusion about what demons are. And this isn't the only place that you see it. I, I believe there's some other Jewish writings uh, that had the same idea that when the Nephilim died, their spirits lived on as evil spirits, as demons. And that would make a huge difference. If you believe in spiritual warfare, if you believe that Jesus literally cast out demons as he went and did ministry, then that means that you're coming to the conclusion that you are fighting off something, if at least if you thought of it in the way of Enoch, that you are fighting off something ancient that has partnered with Satan, that has partnered with the fallen angels who will one day get all their judgment in the lake of fire uh, and all of these other entities that have fallen, which you see throughout uh, uh, the Bible. Uh, I mean, it's not just Satan down there, okay? You've got Satan, who seems to be like the original rebel, uh, kind of like the ultimate bad guy. But then you've got fallen angels who joined Satan in his ranks, as Revelation tells us. You've got uh, demons, who apparently are the... Um, you know, the, the spirits of the Nephilim, which were the children of, of uh, angels having sex with humans. And then it moves on into uh, um, the false gods of Psalm 82. So, like, there's a lot more going on in the spiritual realm than just God, okay? There's a lot more going on in the spiritual realm than just God. There's a lot more going on in the spiritual realm than just God and Satan. And there's a lot more to life as we know it than just God, Satan, and humanity in the middle. The Bible paints a picture of uh, warfare on all sides of different levels of spiritual beings who have different strengths, different capacities, and uh, uh, are very much... Um, different from each other. You know, cherubim, seraphim, uh, watcher angels, the sons of God. These are all names for spiritual beings, but they're not all the same. So even though they fall under the same class of spiritual beings. So all that being said, there is a lot going on there. And the reason that I think Enoch can especially be helpful to us today is just the possibility. Again, it's not scripture, but the possibility that, um, when we come up to to fight uh, demons, that we are going against like ancient, an ancient horde of bad guys, you know that that are are bitter, that are angry, that are out to to fight against God, that want to see him destroyed, and they want to get back at him uh, for the flood and for everything else. Uh, it just leaves this mythology leaves us with. Uh, a little more insight as to what could be going on in the spiritual realm and part of the reasons behind the bitterness there in the first place. And that may do something for you or it may do nothing for you. I, I don't know. Only, only you can deal with that. Um, but it does start to at least shed light on a lot of the demon stories that you come across in the New Testament. Because um, in the Old Testament, demons are only mentioned twice. That's it. But then you get to the New Testament and poof, suddenly they're everywhere. So what were they thinking? Why are they suddenly everywhere? What did they think them to be? Because were they really just thinking, ah, oh, these are just, I don't know, spirits, demons, we'll call them. Or did they have more mythology behind what made it that? And I think today kind of gives you more of that. So <clears throat> we've gone through 
quite a bit of uh, reading today, and um, I just want to remind you again, I think what we've talked about today is important, but the majority of what we talked about today is not necessarily uh, scriptural. Uh, it is in the scriptures, and here's what, I, I mean, if you are like hardcore Jamin, I'm not going to believe anything unless I see it in the scripture, then I would suggest to you, here's what you need to take away from today's story, just scripturally, okay? At one point in history, there were spiritual beings who materialized, had sexual relations with human beings, and created a new breed of existence uh, known as the Nephilim, or giants, who then stuck around through other parts of the Old Testament and tried to fight us. You see them fight in the conquest. You see them fight, I, I think, with Abraham. If you were to pay attention to uh, the real fine details of the people who are rising up to fight Abraham, you got to pay close attention. Uh, and then you see even David taking out a Nephilim, taking out a giant. That all there, like if you're like, Jamin, you're crazy. Well, then you have to affirm the fact that your scriptures are crazy too. Now, could you just look around it and say, nah, nah it's nothing like that. It's, let's see. Let's, they're just men having sex with women. I, I strongly propose to you that that is a weak way to understand the grammar of what is going on in Genesis 6. Uh, what I've just given you is scriptural, and what you see in the New Testament referencing what happened in Genesis by the means of Enoch... <laughs> That's technically scriptural, too, even though some of that might be referenced to Enoch. So uh, that's, that's that. That, that kind of catches us up to speed on this strange story. Uh, the final thing I'll say is this. Uh, here's kind of a, a strong difference between Genesis and Enoch. In the book of Genesis, um, the world is flooded because humanity has become corrupt to its core. It's messed up. It's sinful. It's dark. It's bad. In the book of Enoch, to some extent, that all gets pushed off of humanity and put on spiritual beings. Even the sins that we're committing were taught to us by spiritual beings, you know? A lot of people are like, oh, astrology, that's just stupid. That's not real. You can't, you can't learn that kind of stuff. But then if you were to believe that angels taught us astrology, well, <laughs> suddenly it's like, okay, something that understood that kind of stuff taught it to us, and that's how we learned it. So it's not just all made up. Uh, which even if you didn't believe that angels came and taught us that, um, you know, if you know enough about the supernatural realm, you know people can, we, we as Christians commune with the Holy Spirit, but other people commune with demons, the Bible says. And when they commune with them, they could learn forbidden knowledge, things like that. So all that being said, there's a lot there to deal with today. Either you're like, okay, Jamin, you've taken me a step deeper into the stuff you've been talking about, or your mouth is just a gape and you're like, what is happening? <laughs> so sorry if that's what I've done to you. Um, you want to learn more? Then again, uh, especially on this subject, the best place to go is very, very scholarly writing. Okay. If you start Googling stuff about Nephilim and all this, you're going to come across a bunch of weirdos. Uh, and you're like, Jamin, you're already a weirdo. I get it. Uh, but if you want to learn more about this stuff, you need to study it from the people who who spend their life getting degrees to understand this stuff and are willing to go there. Uh, that's, again, why I suggest Michael Heiser. If you read his book, uh, The Unseen Realm, we'll get a lot into it. Uh, but if that just feels too deep or too um, academic, then I would just suggest checking out his other book called Supernatural. And he'll show you the way in which this whole narrative plays out through the entire Bible. Okay, so with that, if you have questions, which you very well might, uh, just send them my way. Um, all you got to do is go to our webpage. If you don't have my email address, just go to 12waygreenwood.com and type into the Q&A slot or the contact page, whatever your question is. And uh, um, you might want to leave an email too in case I feel like I need to just get back to you personally. Um, but if it seems like a good question for everyone on the next podcast, uh, I'll address it on the next one. So shoot us your questions, your comments. Uh, you know, this is a very confusing subject that's brand new to most people. So it's better to not just sit with confusing things you thought I said. It's better to 
ask your questions and try to get those things sorted out before you yourself start sounding any crazier than the Bible allots you to be. (laughs) Okay, so with that, that is the weirdest midweek podcast to date. Soon we'll be getting into the flood and talking about it. Uh, Was it a worldwide flood? Was it localized? What do we make of this? And we'll be working with uh, The Lost World of the Flood, written by uh, John Walton and uh, Temperman III, uh, who are both scholars, so that you won't just be hearing, again, you know, weird nonsense coming up, but people who have spent a lot of time studying this. So, with that, we'll catch you next time. Uh-huh.